0: hi this is georgina terry welcome to another episode of tea chatter today i have the privilege of talking to natalie ramsland natalie is sweet pea bicycles and she is one woman with a torch building bikes for women out in portland oregon and this conversation is near and dear to my heart because it's really neat to talk to another woman who actually builds bicycle frames and who weighs 100 pounds like i do Natalie. Thanks so much for for coming to do this. I really appreciate it.
1: Hi, Georgina. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: All right. Listen, I have a question for you. I want to know, did you just kind of wake up one morning thinking to yourself, I'm going to build bicycle frames? (laughs) How did you start in this business?
1: Well, I was a bike messenger after college. um, And I was doing that for about three years in Portland, and then I decided, well, I haven't really put my college degree to use yet. Um, maybe I should go get a graduate degree. So I had been really interested in architecture and design, and so I went to school um, in a program in Canada for, um, for architecture, and I spent about two years um, doing that, one and a half years, I guess. And... Um, I loved it. I loved the design, but everything that was on my mind in terms of design and the way the world is connected physically, everything seemed to come back to bicycles for me, and I just kind of couldn't shake it. Um, And so I kind of had a moment, and it wasn't really the waking up in the morning and realizing that I wanted to build bikes for a living. It was waking up and realizing that I needed to stay with bikes in a way. And so... Um, I came back to Portland and resumed my illustrious career as a bike messenger for another year before it occurred to me, um, actually over some Indian food with my um, soon-to-be husband, that, you know, if I really love bikes and I really love design, maybe there is something something there. And so we explored it for a little bit, and then, you know, pretty soon it was like, yeah, you know what, and gosh darn it, there seems to be a real need for bikes that are designed sensibly for women. Um, So many of the women that I had um, ridden with, both recreationally and as a bike messenger, were on bikes that kind of didn't fit them very well. Um, And we were always jealous of the fellows who could walk into any bike shop, whether it was, you know, used bikes or new and find something that more easily fit them. And so without really knowing what that meant, I felt a sense of mission around building bikes that worked for a lot of the women that I knew. So um that's kind of how I got my start. Well,
0: that sounds uh really kind of familiar in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's like seeing the, the story repeat it again and again, which is really, really neat, you know, just in terms of how you, you came back to that from something that you were doing and, and, and all the forces kind of pointed you into into going in that direction. Once once how did you learn stuff like brazing and all that? I mean I I'm assuming you probably didn't get a chance to do much of that as an architect or as a bicycle no. passenger. How did you bootstrap your way into that whole routine?
1: Well, we um we took cash gifts from our wedding and bought welding tanks and um I can't you know, a better use of the money. It's wonderful. <laughs> exactly. That's the way we felt about it. We thought this is the most romantic thing ever. It's like safety gear and chemicals and so um but I, I went down to um Ashland's United Bicycle Institute where they teach yeah. a two week class. In um, chromoly brazing, and they also teach TIG welding. But what I was interested in was the chromoly brazing class. And so, in two short weeks, they take you from um, bike design through you know trying to figure out which end of a bike tube is is which um, yep, to cutting yep. it all up yep. and sticking <laughs> it all together. And um, everything is completely new from turning on you know lighting the torch to um, figuring out how to hold a hand file. Um, all of that was really, really new to me. And so, you know, it's amazing that to think that you can come out on the other side with a bike that is actually roadworthy. Um, and, and that's indeed what happens. But, of course, you know, the more you um, – you can't learn to build a bike in two weeks. You can have the experience. It's almost like it happened to me. The bike somehow got built um, through mm-hmm. the grace of great instructors and a lot of help and a lot of coaching. I would say it was the next bike that I built, the second bike where I really um, I really had to stretch myself to to learn how to use my own tools and construct a method to to build a bike where I was asking and answering um, questions for myself that I hadn't predicted that I'd have. So, you know, while I learned how to build my first bike in two weeks, um, you know, I've just been amazed and, and really delighted to the extent to which I'm learning in every single bike. Um, the second bike was the hardest, though, because oh, yeah. there I was <laughs> alone you know. in a room with a bunch of tubes and I found it really a little intimidating to begin with. And um I feel also really lucky though that there are a lot of people in Portland and there were a lot of people even at that time, um, even though there weren't, you know, twenty seven or so frame builders that there are today, there were enough people who had done it for some period of time that I could call up and ask, you know, Am I gonna blow myself up if I do mm-hmm. this with my porch? Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and I, I love to tell the tale. That's amazing. It's uh,
0: it it is important having that kind of support. I think. I think when I first started in it, I I got a lot of help from a frame builder by the name of Bill Boston. And I don't oh know yeah. You, yeah, Bill Boston, a real East Coast builder, but uh, to my way of thinking, just an incredible fit guru. I mean, this guy mm-hmm. this guy didn't kowtow or I should say doesn't kowtow to tradition whatsoever. He goes out and figures out what the problem is and figures out what the solution is and, and then builds to that solution, which is yes. really kind of neat uh, to find that. And I think sometimes people kind of dismiss him because he won't go mainstream on a lot of stuff. But frankly, that's what makes a Bill Boston a Bill Boston. And that's right. important to have. When, when exactly was this? What year did you actually take this course and build the first frame?
1: That was in 2005.
0: 2005. So you've been at this yeah. team for about five years.
1: Yeah, and I continued to work as a bike messenger for about a year and a half um, yep. afterward. And um, part of that time I was rented a small little space and um, started frame building part-time. And then um, after about a year and a half, it became my full time um, gig, so mm-hmm. um, it was a it was a transition, um, and it, it needed to be that. It, it's it takes time to absorb all of, you know, the the questions and the resources and the things that kind of help shape your your kind of process of working and your your understanding of, of what um, what drives and your design and what what interests you, so mm-hmm. that was really my experience is that over that period of time you know I was encountering um, really sort of deep questions about how do you how do you build bikes for women what does that mean and um, you know how do the methods that are out there answer this question and to what degree of success and it seems like curiosity and um, the willingness to to do problem solving one at a time is kind of the answer to that and continues to be the answer to that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I was really lucky to meet um, Michael Sylvester, who is a professional bike fitter here in Portland, Um, probably, you know, one of the folks in the country who's been at this, in a really inquisitive way for the longest period of time. He's been doing this for about 30 years. And, you know, he happened to be working in the building where I rented a small little space. And we met each other um, Mm -hmm. sometime in my first year of building. And he, um, you know, we started talking about what I was doing and what it was that I wanted to learn. And he said, you know, I'd be happy to teach you everything that I know about bike fit. And so I started studying under him. and you know really came to appreciate um, not only the human body and the, the woman's body on, on a bike to a degree that I didn't realize I could, but I also appreciated the, how the bike industry has reasonably fallen short for women, um, that a lot of the rules of thumb and the traditional methods of building bikes and thinking about how bikes meet the body have worked for men way better than for women for a long time and so you've got this kind of feedback loop of if men are buying most of the bikes and it's these rules of thumb are working well for most men then nothing's really broken but when you talk to the individual woman and her neck hurts or her butt hurts or you know something's not working after 50 miles you realize something is a little bit broken and so Mm -hmm. um at the level of doing fits on individual women, it's been really fun to kind of um, tease out the, the nuances and the finer points of, of fit and cycling.
0: That's, that's a whole discussion I want to have in a few minutes is, is where is the industry and, and, and what are your feelings about that. One thing I do want to ask you about, though, you know, I, when I started doing this, I kind of came at it from a very strong engineering standpoint because I am an engineer. And right. I found myself just totally immersed in the, the geometry of the bicycle frame, the metallurgy of brazing, and, and the tubing that I was using. You know, I was reading technical stuff from Handy Harmon and all these guys who make this stuff. How how did you learn about that? I mean, certainly coming from architecture, that gives you a strong background in structures and that. But I'm sure you felt at some point along the way, I need to – I need to cope with this a little bit and really get it under my belt because I found the more I learned about metallurgy, the more it influenced how I braised, You know, mm-hmm. I knew what I was trying to accomplish. How did you deal with all that?
1: Well, in in two ways. Um first I got um the <laughs> I got a frame building manual, which is written. Oh, kind of yeah. Sure. Bitten. Well, yeah um, you know it's it's kind of the standard manual. I read it cover to cover before I went to um, the frame building school, and there um, I was better prepared to understand um, understand what was going on when we were talking about you know metallurgy and what happens in the brazing process. Um, but the second the second thing is, I was really lucky to. Um, share shop space for a while with a frame builder who's been at this for decades, um, Andy Newlands of strawberry cycles. And he also has the engineers bent. And so when we would talk about things and sort through, you know, problems and, um, kind of discuss our individual work, he would bring to it this, um, this inclination to, you know, talk about, well, you know, as, as, this the uh, is this the process you want to use or um, what you know what's the what's the properties of this two versus that and what's mm-hmm. better for this application um, and so it exposed me to that that side of it and um, so little by little it's through you know choosing choosing your resources that you um, learn which questions you need you need to ask and which ones you need to answer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's kind of an
0: osmosis that goes on, I think,
1: and then yes. you end up
0: with this real synergetic kind of situation when everything starts to take hold, which right. is really cool. So uh, here's a crazy question for you. I've noticed when I was uh, kind of looking at your website and some YouTube videos and all that, that that you aren't wearing a mask when you brace. Is that is that the we're <laughs> going, take off the mask, we can't see what you look like? Or
1: Oh yes, it's absolutely that. And I love that you asked that question because that's the kind of detail that somebody who does this work would know.
0: Yeah. Um
1: and you know, about ninety nine percent of the population, if I was wearing that mask, would say, What's up with that? is she you know yeah, right. Can she not breathe on her own? Is she hooked up to an oxygen tank? <laughs> um but yes, I do use a respirator except for those photo ops because um yeah. My um, my safety gear is so robust that yeah. um, it will swallow me whole. There are there are times when I need to answer the phone in the shop, and I have to pull off. I forget which thing I put on my head last, whether it was the <laughs> goggles or the you know ear protection device yep. or the or the mask. And so I'm just trying to pull this whole thing off my face, and then of course I've got my spectacles underneath it. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite a to do, honestly. So you you've seen the rare footage of um those moments when I'm not entirely engulfed in uh um, and,
0: and then you probably feel if you start on a job and you're not entirely engulfed, you're saying to yourself, What's wrong here? There's something missing. What's missing?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually
1: had a really kind of fun moment in the shop the other day. I was using some aviation tubing snips and just kind of rough cutting a miter and I had my safety goggles on, and I had a mask on because I had been doing something dirty before that with, you know, emery cloth. And um, I managed to flick a little piece of um, of metal, and it, it stuck me in the nose. Um, oh. I guess I didn't have my respirator on. But, yeah, I had everything else on, and I got stuck in, in the nose with a little piece of metal, and I thought, that's amazing. This, I know. This is just like one of those rare flukes where I could actually possibly you know have have metal coming at my face and and hit the target so yeah uh,
0: did, so your building now it is solely for women, right I mean maybe you build for men occasionally, but your thrust is really bicycles for for women
1: that's right, and I do have a couple of men who've you know come they come through them. the ranks, but yeah, but sure. my Motivation, my inspiration, my reason for doing this is to build for women.
0: How many and and my
1: husband. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that pink bike, yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: How many bikes are you building a year right now?
1: A couple dozen. A couple dozen yeah. um that's a, built that's by hand. A lot for a single person
0: just hammering away at it and doing every facet of the business to boot.
1: It it is. It's it's a lot. It's a lot to do. I find myself, um, you know, wondering sometimes, why why can't I do this faster? It doesn't take me that long to do each step of the process. And then I remember, oh, yeah, um, there's there's chatting with the customers. There's doing the fit. There's getting the parts coordinated. There's getting things off to the painter. There's all of that other stuff that um, makes the project complete. And I think a lot of people have that experience where you get into the thing that you most identify with. And you feel like that's what your work is, but then you forget all the other things that make that part of your work possible. Right. right. And I think a lot of folks imagine us frame builders, um, you know, out there in the shop with a torch in their hand 90% of the time. And, um, you know, that's that's not really the reality of it. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of, kind of glamorous um, and, um, maybe not as iconic. That leads up to that moment where you're, you know, actually connecting your bike mm-hmm. from tubes mm-hmm. to make it a frame. So,
0: do you, yeah, are your bikes sold through shops, or do you sell just directly to customers?
1: I just sell directly.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, for what you're doing, because once you start getting shops involved, then the nature of the business really starts to change quite a bit. Uh, yeah. takes you down a whole other path of, of development.
1: Right, right. And that's a path that I don't think I'm really prepared to explore. I see the benefits of it. You know, I would love to have more women riding bikes that fit them well and for women to have more and more opportunities to encounter those bikes in stores. But it's difficult to do exactly what it is that I do, um, which is taking – a woman from wherever she's at with her knowledge and experience from, you know, fit all the way through to a complete bike. Um, mm-hmm. it's hard to do that when you're not intimately involved with the process yeah, all the absolutely. way through. So that's that's the conundrum. Well I'd love to be doing bigger <laughs> volume. Um you I to also yourself. <laughs> Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> that's about the only way to do it. I think that's, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time with customers on the really high-end bikes that we sell that are built by Waterford, and I sort of feel the same way you do. I I can't imagine how any customer would get that much attention or if I would feel as comfortable about knowing that this bike was absolutely perfect if we really did it any other way,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, the, the good and the bad of it.
1: So who's painting your bikes for you? We use Spectrum Powder Works in Colorado. Ah, cool. So most of our bikes are um, powder coated, and um, yeah, they do They do a really fantastic
0: job. That's great to find someone like that. I know when I first started, I really didn't have any interest in learning painting. I mean, that's a whole. Me neither. Oh man, that's like you know learning frame building all over again. But it was so important that the bike be painted well because a, a, a lousy paint job on a beautiful bike just ruins it mm-hmm. and you know you really gotta gotta find someone who knows what's going on because that is an art unto itself right there
1: <laughs> yes yes and i don't know how how you um how you solved that did you have to try a lot of different local painters or did you, you know, how did you it figure was, out it was that?
0: kind of funny I, I was working at xerox when i built my first frame and there was a guy there who, you know, did some painting of small parts for motorcycles and stuff. And he said, let me give it a shot. And he was pretty decent, but he was like me. I mean, he had a full-time job and it wasn't going to lead to anything. And then I got I got a call from a guy at an auto body shop who said, you know, I want to try one of these frames. How hard can it be to paint these little round bikes? I do great big cars. And I'm like, yeah, we'll see. You know, so after three attempts and not able to control the drips coming off the bottom side oh, of the yeah. tube, He gave up, and then I was really, really lucky because I saw an ad in a magazine placed by a guy by the name of Brian Mordock, who was at the time the painter for Ben Serrata,
1: and he was looking
0: for painting jobs on the side. So I sent him a bike, and he sent it back, and I knew that was it. I'd found my painter, and and he was the one. The whole time I was building, he was painting. It was fantastic.
1: But, yeah, that that relationship is such an important one um, because there's a lot of ways that you connect to a bike. And for for us, a lot of the bike and the beauty in the bike you see when, you know, we hang out with the bike mostly when it's unpainted, but the customers <laughs> may hang out with it mostly when it is painted. And, um, you know, color and the way the bike, you know, appears aesthetically is so much of how you – you know, just sort of relate to yeah. that object as an intimate personal artifact. And so it's got to be right. And, absolutely. And I really appreciate um, how important that is. And, in fact, I don't know if you find this, but some of my customers have a really hard time making that decision. They'll know That's everything the else hardest about the bike. decision. Yeah, That's, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So I get them started early in the process, even if it's going to take, you know, even if they're not going to get their bike for a year.
0: Uh-huh. I need them to
1: start thinking about the color because, too often, you know, you come to that end and you can't decide between is it mango or papaya? I can't decide.
0: <laughs>
1: oh yeah, I that yeah. I used to kind of
0: joke around. You know, it it's interesting because we we would take bikes to rallies like Rag and stuff, and it was very interesting to see how men and women approached these bikes and what they responded to first. And always with women, the first question was is this the only color? The first question with men was, are these the only component groups you offer? And <laughs> then, really and then they, would, they would both reverse and come, you know, after she got the color out of the way, okay, is it fine technically? All right, now we can talk. And with him it was exactly the opposite. Don't really care right now what it looks like, but can you get campy?
1: Just a right. different
0: approach to buying.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think it really touches on how, important it is that you can relate to your bike as a complete object and that it feels that it just fits right it feels it feels somehow right to you like it's a um it's complete the way it is and there's um you know there's all kinds of ways to get there and whether you start with um you know the mechanical functions of the bike or you know whether it has fenders or not there's there's a certain resonance that you're ultimately hoping to get to and so with a lot of my customers who have the complete visual package and they know that it's papaya and not mango, um, you you do end up working around to all those other things. It's like the importance of finding the entry point. And that's what's so lovely about being able to talk with each individual customer is that you can have that conversation over a period of time and kind of tease out all those aspects of the bike that make it yours.
0: Yeah, because it definitely is like your best buddy forever and ever. There's no doubt about it. Mhm. What yeah, do you absolutely. think? I mean, I've been doing this for a while, and and you've been doing it for a while. What What do you see going on in the industry with respect to to bicycles for women and bicycles that fit women properly? Is the industry doing a good job? Mediocre? Is it? What What are your take? What's your take on that?
1: I think the industry is well-meaning, I really do. I think the intention is to address women cyclists, but I don't think there's, it doesn't seem to me that there's a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of real effort to explore doing things in a different way in order to solve that problem. it it seems to me that one of you know there's bicycle companies who are offering um, products that are sold as women specific designs and I think the more variety you see in frame sizes available and frame kind of configurations the better it's going to be for everybody whether that's helping women in particular I'm I'm not entirely sure um, certainly efforts to um, include narrower handlebars on stock frames and to offer shorter crank arm lengths on smaller bikes. Things like that are really good. But the way I see the gap opening up or continuing to remain is at the level of of knowledge around bike fit. And individual shops, they want to solve customers' problems, you know, getting women who come in the door, out the door on a bike that they like, that they're happy with. But it seems to me that they um, until the bike industry as a whole takes up its its game in terms of understanding how bodies relate to bikes. It's going to be really difficult for those retailers to say, "Hey, you know, big bike company, um, I'm having a lot of women who really don't need this." the steep of a seat tube angle on the small size frames or, hey, you know what, there is a demand for smaller size wheels or, you know, I, I think it's that feedback that mm-hmm. um, isn't really happening. I think
0: in general
1: the industry has the has the intention to do something for women cyclists but hasn't really done the hard work of getting the education um, around that to the level where it's actually making a big difference for the, for the woman who is walking into a bike store today.
0: Yeah, I sort of feel the same way. I think they really want to do something. But I found myself kind of getting nervous about this recently because it seems in some respects the industry may be actually taking a little bit of a step back on, on some initiatives they'd started. Like there were several bicycle companies who were building in the 650 wheel size in their smaller Mm -hmm. sizes and suddenly that seems to have disappeared 700c has moved back into its place which i'm not really sure what's going on there and then one thing i heard just recently which was really wild is that at the very high end of the production bike market this new kind of unisex offering has appeared and what what makes it work for both sexes is that the head tube is taller in the front. I mean there was just a mm-hmm. great photo I saw of a Pegaretti and the the head tube on that bike, I'm not kidding you, it must have been two inches above the top tube. It was you like wondering wow. is it really safe? I don't know. But but the comment <laughs> I was hearing from people is, you know, well, once we get the head tubes up there, then this issue of being able to raise the stem and all that stuff, now that goes away and everybody's happy and I'm thinking, Oh, if it were only that simple <laughs> So I yeah. sort of think, you know, are you are you pulling back because you never really understood it and how to handle it, or is this being driven by mass production cost? I'm not really sure, but it's a little bit disconcerting.
1: Yeah, and I think you've hit on a couple things that are, are really true. I think mass production is part of it. I think the materials that um, are being marketed, like the carbon, you know, primarily, um, is – you know, it has constraints in the manufacturing and you can't, you know, customize that at the level of a custom frame builder's kind of fit. I mean, you can, but that's not, that's not typical. And I think, you know, there's probably a desire to keep the costs um, low, and not offering, you know, five different kinds of forks if you can offer one. Right. Um, and so... Yeah, I, I I see that, and I also see that there isn't um there there's a desire to find a um kind of magic solution. Oh, if we can do taller head tubes, then we solve a problem. But if you don't know what problem you're actually trying to solve, um, you're just making it another gesture. Um, right. It's it's not necessarily any different than the Keeping the head tube where it was. Um, if you right. don't know what you're trying to solve for, right, right. And oh, um, it... Sorry. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I just I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of product development that's marketing related, but maybe the feedback loop isn't hooked up such that um the way people's bodies fit on bikes are driving the innovation.
0: Yeah hopefully they'll get that under control because it's a shame to put a woman in a situation where she has to pay three, four, five, six thousand dollars 6000 to get to a frame that really, really fits her. I mean, bikes that fit women should be available at all price points.
1: Oh, and I completely agree because so many of us, um, you know, don't get into cycling because it's never been comfortable for us. Um, right. There are so many women that I know who, you know, would love to bike more but, you know, they can't find anything that's in their size and they don't, you know, know that they're going to love, say, cyclocross racing enough to invest in the frame that fits and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You can't fall in love with something that hurts you. Right. Um, right. And it's hard to invest um, in, you know, it's hard to get started in a sport at an entry level if there's no entry level options available. So I'm, you know, I'm uh, – eager to see the trend that we're talking about turn around so that you see, you know, frames in smaller sizes and varying configurations so that the average woman doesn't have to consider herself um, a bike expert or a bike superstar in order to warrant, um, you know, the purchase of a bike that's going to work for her.
0: I'm curious about your customers. I think the average American woman is somewhere around five four, maybe five five. Do you, mm-hmm. find that, do you find that your customer base follows that bell curve, or does it tend to be skewed towards the smaller rider?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, I have I have a, a lot of women in the five foot one, five foot two range. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that probably most of my customers are. Yep. five foot four. Um, but then I also have those women who, you know, my tallest customer I think is six foot three. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but what I've, what I've found, and I'd be interested in hearing your experience around this, is that the rules of thumb around like, you know, women tend to have shorter torsos and longer legs. That mm-hmm. seems to be most true at the most average size. Mm-hmm. But then when you get into the really tall and the really short women, those general rules of thumb kind of go out the window.
0: I think, yeah, you're definitely onto something there. I've certainly found that I think to be true with women who are say five, four and under. Even with a lot of taller women than we fit, it does seem that it's it's they tend to be leggier um, than a male of a certain of that same height, uh, and and longing for something a little bit shorter in the distance to the handlebars, I can remember a one of the first bikes I ever built was for a friend of mine who's six one, and the joke about that bike I'm five three is that I could rest my chin on the top tube of her bike. <laughs> but wow, the distance to the handlebars from the saddle on our bikes really wasn't that much different. Hers was a little bit longer, but not a whole lot. And then, you know, we we actually, as a manufacturer, kind of began with a little bit of a myth. And the myth was that women are longer-legged than men. And it turns out that's really not true. Right, yeah. It's not true. But what is true is that women's muscles are in slightly different position than men's. And so they feel stresses in a different way than men do if they're in the same position on a bike. and.
1: Yeah, and also the the pelvis, sorry, go
0: ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. And the symptom of all that is get me a little bit more upright, which leads you then to think, well, they must have shorter upper bodies. Mm -hmm. Not
1: necessarily so. (laughs) Right, exactly. You just need to, as you bring the body up, you're bringing it back. Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. And there's also this myth that, well, if women are so flexible, shouldn't they be able to? Um, be in a super aggressive position on a bike. And it's yeah. not really the way our pelvis is and our anatomy is shaped. It, it It's not the happiest scenario <laughs> to it's have not. our handlebars, um, you know, 12 centimeters below our saddle.
0: And, you know, I think, too, I think sometimes that, that men and women perceive comfort in totally different ways. And then mm-hmm. and sometimes for a guy, even though he may be uncomfortable, if you tell him he's, like, super aerodynamic, he will live with
1: <laughs> You're but so if right. Will go,
0: you are just full of it.
1: <laughs> you know, after about a year of sitting in on fittings to learn from Michael Sylvester, the bike fitter, um, I'd seen a lot of men's fittings and a lot of women's fittings. And after a customer left, I said, hey, is there something about guys and their stems that I should know about? And um, and he was like, yeah, actually there is. And so the deal is that a man will suffer and declare himself to be, oh, perfectly fine, perfectly fine, as long as it means that he's going to walk out of there with a stem that looks like Lance Armstrong's, its flat, straight, and it doesn't rise up in any funny way. Whereas women will say, make me comfortable, make this, you know, fit really well, make it so that I, after 100 miles, I'm still feeling great. And whatever stem that is that gets me there, that's the stem I want. Um, and so there's a really big difference.
0: The funny kind of corollary, I guess, to that is, if you could just put aerodynamics aside for a little while, and you look at, I mean, put a power meter on these people and look at the amount of power that they're putting out in in those two positions. And I think you'll find that the one who's comfortable is actually, getting getting more power into it than the one who's not
1: <laughs> Maybe
0: psychologically it doesn't feel that way, and you know psychology is a huge part of all of this but uh it's it's really really cool stuff to think about and to experience
1: <laughs> yeah well what i what I feel really lucky about, and you probably have this experience too is that um when I, most of my customers are willing to let me um help them solve a problem um, with fit and are are very open to um, ways to make this bike work for them in a way that no other bike has before. Um, And I think there's a lot of, I think, either just a tendency or a pressure that men feel to, to come into a bike experience as experts or with a preconceived mm-hmm. notion of the way, what ideal looks like. And it's mm-hmm. really hard to help somebody who um, knows what the answer is already. Um, and it's much easier to work with somebody who is willing to you know, ask questions, try things, and and maybe discover something along the way about their body and, and the bike. And mm-hmm. um, so I feel really, really lucky that, that the demographics that we work with um, lets us really work with them.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's great having those conversations and just feeling the knowledge building on both sides because I'm sure every customer you meet presents you with a new challenge and you always walk away from it saying, I learned something from this.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely.
0: Which is terrific. Well, let me ask you just one last question because we probably should wrap this up. So you started this in about 2005, you said? Mhm. And what's the future hold? Can you be a frame builder for the rest of your life? What do you think?
1: Oh, I'm not sure. I I mean, I know <laughs> that bikes will be in my life for forever. I I just can't seem to take that to the curb. Um, no, you should. <laughs> <laughs> um, I see sweet pea um growing over the next few years, and I'm excited about a few projects that we're working on and um, expanding our offerings and hopefully making more sweet peas available to more women um, over the next few years. So, yeah, the the future is is big and shiny.
0: Do you you ever go to rallies or anything and show your products?
1: Um, I have, have, like, bike shows and such.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, I've done
1: a little bit of that in the past. And it's always a trick to find the ones where, um, well, there aren't just big dude fests, for one,
0: um, yeah. and yeah. there there are
1: those, but, um, but I'm really selective about how much of that I do, not because I'm not excited to meet people and talk about bikes, but more that I've got yeah kind of a long wait list as it is and the uh, <laughs> good point. And it, right, and the, the time that it, it takes to, to go to these things and, and show up and really present well is yeah, um, yeah. and there's another there's another thing that I think is important to mention about that is that um a lot of these bike shows show off certain things about bikes really well. Like shiny lugs, um, shiny dropouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah intricately carved this and that, painted this and that, um, you know, custom racks and custom stems. And all of that's really great, but it isn't the thing that makes my bikes most unique. The things that make my bike unique, um, you can't really see on the showroom floor, and it's how that bike relates in millimeters and angles to a particular body in motion. And that's where most of my... um, Design is is kind of invested, um, and it's not something that's read so apparently um, on the surface. When you look at a sea of bikes in a room, um, it's a kind of beauty that's more subtle and yep. uh, relational. And yep. so, so that's kind of where I, I really see um, see the strengths of my design. Mm-hmm. And um, so, those those who I looking for that seems to find me, and um, I hope that that continues, but um, I know that I'm not the you know diamond encrusted bottom bracket kind of bike builder <laughs>
0: well, I think you're doing things perfectly I mean you're coming at it from absolutely the right point of view, which is you have a product that has to work for the customer and and you know if you're you're true to that mission, then the bike will will accomplish all of that and speak well for you and and bring you tons and tons of business, I'm sure. So uh, I think you're doing things just right, for sure. Well, thank you. So thank you. This has been great. Uh, Hopefully maybe we can get together again and talk about some more stuff because I think it was a great conversation.
1: Oh, I would love to.
0: And I, again, appreciate all the time. It was terrific.
1: And thank you. You're welcome.